Well, we are going to begin with a, a psalm this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is where we're going to be starting off this morning. I want to ask you guys if you have ever messed up. I know you've messed up because we're all fallen, we're all sinners. But if you messed up and immediately thought, oh no, can I have those 10 seconds back? Please, God, give me those 10 seconds. Um, driving your car into something or backing into something or maybe words that you expressed. Um, I'm sure that we all have that feeling of instant regret and just wanting to push rewind on our life. And in those moments, no doubt, we're not rushing to go and tell other people about the mistake that we've made, about the error that we found ourselves to be in. But we're kind of reluctant, right, to, to admit Man, I, I made this mistake. I messed up. Uh, well, here in Psalm 78, we're going to read about a ton of mistakes that Israel has made. A ton of times where God is absolutely good and absolutely faithful. And we see his grace and his provision despite Israel's constant failure and their repeated unfaithfulness. And I'm only going to read a portion of the chapter. It's a long chapter. But we can see, even in this first portion of the chapter, the repeated failures of Israel, God's repeated loving kindness and forgiveness. So let's go ahead and let's start in verse 1 of Psalm 78, and then we'll go ahead and open up in prayer. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have, ne which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us, we will not conceal from them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous work that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the, gen the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the days of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law, they forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. And he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. 
Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled, and their desire he gave to them. Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. God, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, that you are a God who shows compassion despite our constant failures, despite our constant shortcomings. God, we thank you for the story of Psalm 78 for this recollection of how you were faithful to Israel despite their many shortcomings. God, we thank you for who you are. We pray that this morning as we look into your word that you would help us to focus on you, that you would give us understanding about what it is that you would have for us this morning, what it is that Paul was seeking to communicate to the Corinthians. God, help us to have a greater appreciation for you and a greater understanding of our sin, our shortcomings, our responsibility to walk in the light as you are in the light, to be holy even as you are holy. God, help us to run a race that is pleasing to you. God, we thank you once again for your word. Pray that you would speak to us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's go ahead and turn forward in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning, but before we get there, let's do a little bit of recap and review. Let's turn back to chapter 8, and I want to look at Paul's thought. He has one kind of overarching thought throughout chapter 8 and 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the liberty that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have as Christians, the privileges that he has given to us as believers in the Most High. In chapter 8, he talks about how the Corinthians need to be careful in their use of liberty, how they have this freedom in Christ, but they also have brothers and sisters who are in Christ who are weaker brothers, and they need to be on guard for how their liberty can affect their weaker brother. In chapter 9, Paul talks about his own use of liberty and how he has taken that liberty and he set it aside so that he can serve his weaker brother. And then here in chapter 10, we're going to get an example, a picture of Israel Paul wants the Corinthian church and us, by extension, to learn from Israel and the mistakes that Israel has made so that they won't be repeated again. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to read verse 4 for us. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, 
and that there is no God but one. So Paul is here affirming there's only one God. There's no such thing as an idol. There are things that people worship, but they're not true gods. And yet he goes on in verse 7, and he he says, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. So, Paul recognizes no such thing as an idol. It's not a a big deal to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. However, I want you to consider your brother. That person who really does take issue with this meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, to him, it is a a big deal. To him, that idol is a thing. And for the sake of your brother, go ahead and lay aside your liberty so that you don't cause your brother to stumble, so that you don't cause your brother to sin, even though... Innately, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. It is not a sin for, for you, but consider your brother. And then starting in verse 13 of this same chapter, Paul talks about his own use of this liberty. And some people read verse 13 as being somewhat hyperbolic, but I think Paul was absolutely serious in this when he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul had such a, a heart and such a compassion for those who were his brothers, those who were uh, affected by his decisions, that he didn't want to do anything that might cause them to stumble. He said, I won't even touch meat. I won't even eat meat again if it's going to affect my brother. And he's imploring the Corinthians and us to have that same mentality. Going on in verse 9, he says, Am I not free? Or chapter 9, rather, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus. Are you not my work in the Lord? And to all these we can say, yes, he was free. Yes, he was an apostle. He had seen the Lord and the Corinthians. They were the result of his work. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers and the Lord and Cephas? Paul is saying here, yes, you have liberty as those who are in Christ. And I, even more so, as an apostle, I have the same liberty that you have in Christ. I can take along a believing wife if I so desire. I can uh, do all these things that you do. I have the right to eat. I have the right to drink. I am an apostle of the Lord. And so he's established the fact that, yes, he has liberty. And then he goes on. He talks about how he's going to lay aside his freedom that he has, the liberty that he has to receive payment for his, his work as an apostle, his work as a, a pastor in these different areas. We went through this over the last few weeks. Hopefully this is all ringing a bell for you that Paul says, yes, the, the ox, he, he threshes and eats at the same time. The soldier, he doesn't go to war and pay his own expenses to go to war. The farmer doesn't 
refused to eat from the produce of his land. He eats freely, and he says that he had the liberty, the right to eat freely also, to receive payment for what he did, but he had set that side, he had set aside that liberty, that right, so that he could be of service to others around him. He did this for the sake of the gospel. Verse 19 of chapter 9, he says that explicitly. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. What a great verse. What a great heart and a glimpse into Paul's heart that we see, that he, even though he has this abundant freedom, he desires to become all things to all people, he might win more to Christ. Same, same concept in verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul has a desire to love these people, and he's willing to set aside the same liberty that he's calling others to set aside, so that we can better love our brother. Now, this is only one of two with liberty, of only two concerns regarding liberty and our use of liberty. So first of all, he wants to be careful of how our liberty is going to affect others. How our liberty, our freedom, our privilege in Christ is going to affect others who are in Christ. That should be of utmost concern for the Christian. We should definitely take that into account before we seek to exercise our liberty. The second issue is that we ought to be careful not to disqualify ourselves by our use of liberty. So we need to watch out for how our liberty affects others. We need to be careful of how our liberty could potentially disqualify ourselves, not from salvation. If we are in Christ, nobody can take us out of Christ, but from our effectiveness in ministry. We need to be careful that our liberty does not disqualify us from our effectiveness in ministry. And we went over this last week at the end of chapter 9 when Paul uses this example, this illustration of racing and boxing and doing so effectively as to the Lord. In verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul is aware of the effects of his liberty, how it can affect others, how it can affect his own ministry and potentially disqualify him from having an effective ministry for the Lord. And this same thought process carries on into chapter 10, as Andy read for us just shortly ago, talking about how Israel ran. And he uses them as a negative example, how they didn't run well. They didn't run a race that uh, is without, uh, without issue, right? They were disqualified from having an effective ministry in the race that they ran. And we are called to really outrun Israel, to run a race with endurance, a race where we will not be disqualified. Looking at verse 1, chapter 10, uh, we see the, the fervency in Paul's speech. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware. Pay attention. Listen up. This is important. I do not want you to be unaware 
brethren, that our fathers were all under a cloud and they all passed through the sea. Now, before we really get into this text, uh, I need to really pause and emphasize the fact that Paul is talking to Gentiles, right? The the church at Corinth isn't made up primarily of, of Jewish believers, but of Gentile believers. They're speaking in uh, a context that isn't uh, Jewish primarily. And um, people have taken this passage, and because of the, the phrase here, because of the wording, he calls them brethren. And he points to our fathers. People said, well, he's obviously making Jews out of these Christians. And the, the church to be Israel, saying that the church is now somehow part of Israel, spiritual Israel. And I think we need to be careful there. I don't think that's at all what this passage is, is speaking towards. And so we need to realize that um, Paul, being a Jew himself, isn't identifying these other believers in Corinth as Jews, but rather he's pointing to their, uh, their shared ancestry of, of faith uh, in the, the fathers, in the, um, the patriarchal fathers. Um, read with me in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. It says that blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Well, that's a good thing, right? Well, who is this man whose sins have been for forgiven, whose sins have been covered, whose sins the Lord won't take into account? Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to him, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, I know that I just said circumcised and uncircumcised like 10 times, and you might have got lost. But Paul's saying that we can look to Abraham as our father, as a founder of our faith, because he was credited righteous because of his faith. And he's called the father even of the uncircumcised because of his faith in God. And so that's the understanding that we need to have here in 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul addresses these brothers and here, that is our fathers in the faith. When we speak of our, our founding fathers of America, we're not adopting their, their ethnicity, right? When we speak of the early church fathers, we're not adopting their ethnicity. So Paul here, clearly speaking to Gentiles, speaking of those who have gone before us, those giants in the faith upon whose shoulders we stand, he says that these guys, these fathers of ours, they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And as we read through this passage, you'll see this word all repeated seven, five times in just four verses. So 
he talks about how they were all under the cloud. They were all passed through the sea in verse 1. Verse 2, all were baptized into Moses. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. So this word all is repeated over and over again, speaking of these fathers who did these things. And so this tells us that all of the, the group that's being mentioned here, all of these Israelites had a shared experience. They all were unified in their experience. They were all unified in their, their liberties, how God had liberated them from the Egyptians. God had done these things for each and every one of them. They all together had experienced these things corporately as a group. And the first thing that we see is that all of the fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And this is a, a reference back to the exodus of, of Egypt. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Exodus, so keep a, a finger in 1 Corinthians, but turn with me back to Exodus chapter 13. And let's look at these experiences that all of the fathers went through together. They all experienced together. And I want to start by looking at Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And jumping down to verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them by the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so we see here that God is leading all these fathers. He's directing them, showing them where to go in this cloud, in this Shekinah glory. God is manifesting himself before these people, showing them where it is that they ought to go. And he's not leading them the way that they think makes sense. He's leading them straight into the, the Red Sea. He is guiding them, all of them together, into the way that they ought to go as they are being led by their creator. Uh, jumping down into chapter 14. Let's pick it up in verse 13. It says, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord Yahweh, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. That's pretty explicit, right? Never again forever will you see them. The Lord Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. And then jumping down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. 
And then it goes on to talk about how God turned the waters down onto the Egyptian army and killed all of the Egyptian army. Verse 30, it says, The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead at the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had given the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his Moses. This is an incredible narrative that we have. These people being led by God himself up to this point of the Red Sea, and then God opens up the Red Sea for them, miraculously. Not in a, a natural way, but in a way that allows them to walk through on dry land. And then, just a short time later, the Egyptians were all killed in the same water that God had separated for his people to walk through all together as they were being led by God. What an amazing thing to experience. What an amazing thing for these Israelites to see and to be a part of, to partake in, to have God in a, a visible form leading you in such a miraculous way up out of Egypt, answering your prayers that you have offered to him for, for years, being under this slavery, being oppressed by the Egyptians, and God has freed them. And they had seen this, experienced this, all themselves. Back in 1 Corinthians, again, we're going to be jumping back and forth a little bit. Uh, it said that our fathers were all under the clouds. They all passed through the sea. And then verse 2, we see this kind of familiar phrase that says that we were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now I have a, a pop quiz for you guys who are in my systematic theology class. What is it that we should think when we read this word or hear this word baptism? What should we think? Oh, it's really quiet. Man, we need to go over this again, I guess. Association, that's a good word. I like that word. Good. Um, I've, I was looking for identified, but association works just fine. So association or identified. Um, not water. That's normally where our minds go, right? Because of where we are and where we live and how we consider when we hear that word baptism, we think, okay, water. But we should think identified when we hear that word baptism. And we're going to do a little brief study on this word baptism because there are several baptisms in the Bible. Even in the Old Testament, we're not really going to spend much time looking, we're not going to spend any time looking at those baptisms. But briefly, um, I want to look at Mark chapter 1 and the baptism of John the Baptist, because John's baptism is different. It's unique from other baptisms that we see in the Bible. And once again, when we read this word baptism, think identified, not water necessarily, okay? So John chapter 1, verse 4, says that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And so this baptism actually does take place in water, in the Jordan River, right? But it's identified as a baptism of repentance. And so what was taking place in this baptism, baptism drawn, different, unique from baptism we practice today, is that people were coming along and they were being identified with repentance. They were saying, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of repentance. I'm looking forward to a Savior who I need to come and save me. I need to repent. I've 
done wrong against God. I sinned against God. So John's baptism was a baptism of repentance where people were identifying with that need for repentance. Second baptism I want to point out is right in our book that we're studying this morning in 1 Corinthians. Uh, let's jump forward to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 talks about baptism in the Holy Spirit. It says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And so here there's mention of water. Water's not in view at all here. But rather, the body of Christ is being identified with one another through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He is identifying us and making us into one body. We here are one local body, but even beyond these walls, there's one body of the church, one universal invisible church, and we are all identified together through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He makes us one through that spiritual baptism. Let's look at one more together in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. This is a a popular passage on baptism. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And this is going to be talking about what you and I understand most commonly as baptism. This is going to be identifying uh, believer's baptism, which is really a picture of spirit baptism. In spirit baptism, when we are identified with Christ and the body of Christ, we are being put into this body of Christ and that is what's pictured in water baptism, in believer's baptism, what we read about here in Romans 6, starting in verse 3. And Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We've been identified with Christ, identified in his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. And this is what takes place in spirit baptism. We are identified with him in his death, identified with him in his resurrection. And once again, that's what is pictured in water baptism. You go under, you come up. It's a picture of regeneration, the new birth. We've been talking about that in our Sunday school class as well. But uh, this is a picture of what takes place in spirit baptism. So once again, think baptism, think identified, right? Or associated. That's also a good word. Um, probably the, the most mind-blowing, the most mind-blowing baptism we read about in Scripture is the baptism of Jesus because Jesus is unique and his baptism was 100% unique. In Matthew 3.15, Jesus is talking to John the Baptist and they're having this back like, I'm not going to baptize you. Why would I baptize? I need to be baptized by, by you, not me baptizing you. And Jesus calms him down and just says, hey, just, just permit it, all right? Just allow it so that we can fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus was doing there is he was identifying himself with, with us and our need for righteousness, our need for fulfilling the law. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in submitting himself to a baptism that clearly he didn't have a need for, he was identifying with us and our need to fulfill that law. But here, 
um, getting back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when it's talking about all those who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Hopefully, during this little mini-series on baptism, we can know that it's not talking about water baptism. Even though there's a sea mentioned, remember, they went through on dry ground. Uh, they weren't wet from the cloud, right? This cloud was to lead them, not to rain upon them. This sea was uh, a way of escape, not a way for them to, to get wet or be baptized in any way. But they were being baptized not by Moses, but into Moses. They were being identified with Moses. Uh, in Exodus 33, we can read about this conversation that Moses is having with God and how he's interceding for these Israelite people and how he is coming forward and being the representative for saying, God, they, these your your people, they need you to, to lead and guide them. They need your salvation. Uh, withhold your judgment, your wrath from them. Again, we looked at that through uh, Psalm 78 and how there was this constant back and forth, how Israel would sin and fail and go against God and God would show them grace and compassion and mercy and continue to to provide for them despite their shortcomings. And Moses is interceding for these people. And we read there and a number of other places that Moses found favor with God. God loved Moses. He found favor with Moses. And these people were being baptized into Moses. They were being identified with Moses, this intercessor on their behalf, God. These people were being identified with this man who was their leader who led them under the, the provision and leadership of God on high through the cloud and through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Verse 3, all ate of the same spiritual food. Again, let's not lose sight of the fact that all of Israel is going through these things so far, right? We see all of Israel being baptized, all of Israel in the cloud, all of Israel in the sea, and here all of Israel ate of the same spiritual food. All right, hopefully you still have your finger or a pen in Exodus. Turn back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, and let's read there of this spiritual food that they all participated in. And before we read this, it's important to point out that this spiritual food is real food, right? They're actually partaking of this food. Um, so when it's spiritual, it's not speaking of the, the essence of the food. Um, they're actually taking it and biting it, right? You can't bite a, a spiritual donut, right, or spiritual manna. Um, it's real food, but uh, the, the source of it is spiritual. It came to them uh, miraculously. It was miraculously supplied from on high. So, Exodus chapter 16, let's read verses 2 through 5. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel, again, all of them, right? The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Not a good idea. Verse 3, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare 
they, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they had gathered daily. And so this bread fell down on a daily basis for Israel to go out and to collect. And miraculously, it would evaporate. It would melt and disappear. After one day, it would go rotten if they held on to it. They were commanded not to hold on to it. But after one day, it would go rotten unless it was the manna that they happened to gather on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, or on Friday for the Sabbath day, so they wouldn't have to go out after it again. On that day, it would last twice as long. Again, it's not spiritual in essence, it's spiritual in its source. It came from on high, and that very fact helps to establish that, that this spiritual food that they had grumbled and complained for was given to them from God. They took of it together and witnessed the great provision, the miraculous hand of God. Uh, They had all taken of this spiritual food together. Not only did they all eat of the same spiritual food, uh, they all drank of the same spiritual drink. Uh, Looking in Exodus 17, we see this great report of how they were provided for by God. and They all drank of this spiritual drink, which once again was literal drink, right? That was provided for them in a miraculous spiritual from a miraculous spiritual source. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up out from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand, your staff, with which you struck the Nile. And go before, and I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? Or not. Again, probably one of those moments that afterwards Israel kind of wish they could take back, right? We see them come through the cloud under the kind of glory of God, being led miraculously through the, the Red Sea. God provided for them manna after they grumbled and complained. He provided for them quail, which just flew into their camp and fell down and died. And they were able to eat quail on a daily basis. That's a pretty cool, miraculous story. But then they continued to grumble and complain, and God provided for them water miraculously from a rock. They were being provided for by God, turning around, complaining, grumbling. God, in his mercy and his compassion, continued to provide for them. Uh, Back in 1 Corinthians 10, when we read in verse 4 about their drink, it says that all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. 
when it says that they were drinking, this is in a, an imperfect tense, which means that they were continually doing it. It wasn't just that they were provided for by God, one and done type of deal. But they were continually being provided for by God. They were drinking on a, an ongoing basis without completion. They were experiencing the goodness and the provision of God. So much so that there was a, a Jewish legend that actually said that this rock that God had provided water for them from followed them around as they were wandering throughout Israel. That this rock like literally picked up and followed them around. Um, and it seems to be that Paul is kind of playing on this legend, this Jewish legend that says that this rock was following them around. And he says in the latter part of verse 4 that they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So he's saying, yes, they were constantly provided for. Yes, they constantly drank, and they had this provision, and this provision was from the rock who is Christ. And you can read all throughout the Old Testament, and there are a number of times when God, the one monotheistic God of creation, is identified as the rock. I want to read just a few, a sampling of these verses for you. First Samuel 2 says that there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my Second Samuel 22, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock? 18, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. And then just a, a splattering. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. He is my rock. The rock of my refuge, the rock of our salvation. Lord, the rock of Israel, O Lord, our God, you are an everlasting rock. Over and over again, the one God of the universe is described as the rock. And here, Jesus is described as the rock who was with them, providing for them all throughout the wilderness. This is a, a pretty cool glimpse into the fact that Jesus was there with them in the wilderness, providing for them. Now, Israel didn't have a robust theology and understanding of the Trinity. It was largely a mystery that was un hidden from them and unfolded throughout progressive revelation. God revealed more and more of himself to us as time progressed. God didn't just give Adam complete revelation of everything that was going to happen from creation to, to the end of creation, right? Uh, to the recreation. But rather, we have progressively been given more and more insight, more and more information as time has gone on. And this pre this fact that, that Christ was with them was not abundantly clear and obvious to them as it is to us, as it's been revealed to us here in this passage. We know of the, the incarnation of Christ from our point, from our perspective in history. We speak of the incarnation a lot during the time of Christmas, right? And rightly so, because it is good to, to mark and to note Christ's incarnation, that the Word became flesh, and God actually came and dwelt with us. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. But what does that say except for the fact that the Word was beforehand? The incarnation wouldn't be miraculous if it was just a baby being born, but it was God who was taking on flesh, God who existed before that very point and moment in time who had taken on flesh. And so we need to look 
past the, the incarnation to the pre-incarnation, to Christ's pre-incarnate state. The fact that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, well before He became flesh, right? Jesus didn't start to exist at that point, at the incarnation. He existed well before that. Uh, Colossians 1 is a great place to look at that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn, the preeminent of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or powers, all things were created by him and through him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things exist. And he was doing this well before he took on flesh. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, was at work in creation. He was at work in holding all things together. And clearly here we see that he was at work in the guiding and leading and provision of his chosen people, Israel, and how they made it through and survived through this wilderness wandering. And remember uh, Elijah's servant and how Elijah prayed that his servant would have his eyes open. He'd see the spiritual war that was going on all around him. Um, the spiritual war that's going on all around us and we are oblivious to. Well, much like Elijah's servant was oblivious to the spiritual warfare, and you and I are oblivious to the spiritual battle that we are engaged in on a, a daily basis. Israel seemed to be oblivious to the fact that Jesus was walking with them and providing for them in the wilderness. This is not something that they were aware of. The fact that Jesus was there feeding, sustaining, providing for them himself. This was a mystery to them. And it's revealed here to, to us, again, by progressive revelation here in 1 Corinthians 10 from, from Paul. And it's, it's kind of a cool connection, but before you, you run your Bibles and you start to look for different connections and how we can see Christ in the Old Testament, let me remind you that you are not an apostle, Right? You have not been inspired in the same way that Paul has been inspired. There is a distinct difference between inspiration and revelation. The apostles and the prophets, they were inspired by God with new revelation so they can give this to us. Uh, This was new for them and they would jot it down as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit so that we could have it and we could read it today. You and I, we have this revelation from the inspired apostles and we need to stick here. We need to plant our feet here and lean on and live in what has been revealed to us in Scripture, right? We're not looking for more revelation. This progressive revelation that uh, God was slowly and continually revealing more and more of himself, we're not looking for that to continue. We are not inspired in the same way that the apostles were inspired. We need to be careful not to try to make... uh, stretches in our understanding of scripture not to go beyond what the text says and the text in the old testament didn't say that jesus was this rock that was sustaining israel right this was something that god had revealed specifically and uniquely to paul and you and i need to step back and realize this is different this is unique and we're not to look for those same connections we're not to seek to allegorize a text or to try to make different types out of Christ in the Old Testament that aren't clearly and explicitly explained and laid out for us. This was something unique to 
the apostles. So, all of Israel went through all these different miraculous things, right? Again, five times in four verses, Paul uses this word all. All of you guys were under the cloud. All of you guys went through the sea. All of you guys ate of the spiritual drink, spiritual food. All of you guys were baptized by Moses. This was something that Israel did corporately as a whole. This was something that everybody experienced. And it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, despite the fact that you guys all went through these amazing spiritual uh, experiences, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And when he says most or many of them, God was not well pleased with, really he means nearly all of them God was not well pleased with. There were some two million people who went through the sea, who were uh, rescued up out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness, and two of them were excluded from this group that God was not well pleased with, a mere two. And when it says, so that we, or verse 5, that they were laid low in the wilderness. Some of you, in if you're reading from the, uh, the ESV or the King James, uh, your text will say that they were, were overthrown. But really to get the, the picture that Paul's trying to explain to us here, um, different translations have rendered this word as scattered or laid low. They were scattered and they were laid low. They were killed throughout the 40-year period of their wandering. These two million people, they weren't allowed to go into the promised land, but they were laid low. They were scattered. They were killed despite the fact that they had experienced all these great things. All of Israel was uh, preserved by God in this miraculous way. I've got one more uh, Old Testament passage I want to read. And this one comes from Numbers 14. Numbers 14, starting in verse 26, says, The Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? No kidding, right? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I shall do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son, son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. So those two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, were allowed and permitted to go into this land. Everybody else was laid low, right? Everybody else was scattered. Nonetheless, even though they had experienced all these different things, they were scattered and, and laid low. Now, if, if these people who were the ones to firsthand experience these great miraculous blessings from God, if they were disqualified, so to speak, to borrow Paul's terminology from chapter 9, if they were laid low, then uh, what, what makes us think that, that we could be any different? We are surely distinct from, from Israel, but in uh, a way that really we are more enabled to, to see these different things. Again, this aspect of progressive revelation has enabled us to, to see more of God's hand, more of God's work in 
the way that he has uh, proven himself to be gracious, the way that he has shown his loving kindness to his people. Think about uh, if not all of Israel had experienced these things, then maybe it would make sense for 10 of the 12 spies to return and to say, yeah, we can't, we can't take that promised land. Our God isn't good enough, right? Our God isn't big enough. But all 12 of those spies had experienced these blessings that are being expounded upon here. They had all gone through the Red Sea. They had all been provided for miraculously with manna and quail and water from the rock, and yet they still doubted God. Several times throughout the, the Old Testament, 15 times in Deuteronomy alone, they were told to remember the things that God had done for them. Remember that, that word zakar we talked about a little bit when we were going through Deuteronomy. 15 times we read that God had told them, remember the things that I have done for you. Countless times they were looked, looking to these uh, feasts of remembrance that God had set up and established for them and said, keep this feast in remembrance. They were told to erect these, these monuments of rocks. Take all these rocks and build them up and so that later on when your sons ask you, what is that for? You can tell them, about what God did here. And this rock, this monument here, that's how God rescued us in this area. And the very manna that, remember, it would go bad after a day and go bad after two days uh, on the Sabbath, that manna, God told them to take that and to put it in a jar and to save it so that future generations could see how God had miraculously provided for them. Uh, They were told over and over again to remember the things that God had done so that they would disqualify themselves as they ended up doing. Uh, this disqualification, this isn't a, a reference to them losing out on their, their covenant relationship with God or on the unconditional promises which God had made with their, their fathers, but rather it's uh, speaking to their effectiveness to, to be ministers of God, to reflect God well to the nations. They were known as a bunch of grumbling, complaining Israelites who weren't putting their faith and their trust in God as they should have been doing. And they have been laid out for us as an example, as a, a type. In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says that now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. It's, it's a, a shadow, a type, or a, a picture for us of how God wants us to be more faithful than they were. God wants us to run a race with endurance, right? Setting aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us. He wants us to run better than than Israel ran back in this time where where God was providing for them, where they were liberated from the, the stronghold of Egypt. They were liberated from their freedom, from their thirst, and yet... They didn't use that liberty in a way that honored God. They used that liberty in a way that ultimately disqualified them from their effectiveness in ministering for God. I have a a quote here from John Calvin I want to share with you. He says, Now these things were types to us. He warns us in still more explicit terms that we have to do with the punishment that was inflicted upon them so that they are a lesson to us, that we may not provoke the anger of God as they did, not in punishing them, he has, or God in punishing them, has set before us as a picture, as in a picture, the severity 
that instructed by their example, we may learn to hear. So we have this example, this picture in Israel set before us so that we can learn to, uh, to use our liberty in a, a better way than how Israel used their liberty. And once again, uh, we have a, a better perspective than what they had. We have this understanding that Jesus is the one who was providing for them all throughout the wilderness. We have an understanding that Jesus is the one who was ultimately pictured in, in that manna that God provided for them in the wilderness. In, in John 6, Jesus says uh, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who is giving you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who is giving you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to them. He said, I am the bread of life who comes to me. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And jumping down to verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life is my flesh. And he goes on to talk about how for the for the Jews that were listening to this, this was a hard saying. They were having a hard time wrapping their mind around this. Well, you are the bread that comes out of heaven and you want us to, to eat your flesh? That, that doesn't sound kosher, right? Um, and Jesus was really getting at the fact, again, same kind of idea as this point of baptism, that he wants them to identify with him. You guys are trying to identify with Moses and the fact that God gave uh, this manna to your fathers through Moses. I'm the true bread that came out of heaven. You need to be identified with me. You need to believe in me. And this was what really caught them off guard. But Jesus was saying, I'm the bread of life. Believe in me. You have life in me. Jesus, again in John 16, uh, says that it is to your advantage that, that I go away. And so we... He, he said that it's your advantage that I go away so I can leave the Holy Spirit a, a helper to be with you. And in doing so, you and I are in an even better position than even the, the apostles who were walking with Jesus in that moment, in that point before the Holy Spirit was given and left with them because we have God's completed word that we can go back and we can reference. We have this perspective where we can go back and we can look at how Jesus impacted this, this world. And he is our example of how we are to live we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who can lead and guide us and help us to run this race in a way that will not disqualify us from being effective ministers of the gospel of God. So even though the, this is laid out for the, the Corinthians, you and I should be able to look at it as, as Christians, as uh, descendants of these New Testament Christians, and make application to our own life by saying that we need to run a race that is worthy of the calling that we have received, right? These Corinthians, they had already gotten off to a, a terrible start. Remember back in chapter 5, how this man was being confronted by Paul because he, was, he had taken his own father's wife as his own? That's not a great start to, to running a race, right? Um, in chapter where uh, joining their bodies with prostitutes. Talks about how they were taking each other to court. Uh, these Corinthians were not off to a good race. Not off to 
to a, a good start in their, their race of sanctification, uh, being ministers of the gospel to uh, an onlooking world. And the, the proud Corinthians were acting as if they had already run this race, but really they had just barely left the starting line and they weren't off to a good start. Uh, they weren't running well after God. Um, and you and I must outrun Israel. Hopefully we outrun the Corinthian church, right? And we're not making those same grave mistakes that, that they were making. Um, but we need to allow our, our liberty to be used in a God-honoring way, being careful not to let our, our liberty get in the way of others and how others could stumble as a result of our liberty, but also not allowing our liberty to, to disqualify us. Look at, at Israel and this uh, blessing that they were given. They had a, a great perspective on the goodness of God and the, the provision of God, didn't they? Being led by God himself, sustained by God himself, fed and given water by God himself, led through this sea, and yet they were disqualified. They were laid low. They were scattered throughout the wilderness. We need to look at them and not make that same mistake ourselves. And I think it can be really easy for us to do in a very comfortable 21st century American church to just grow apathetic with where we're at and to think that we've arrived, right? That we are, are here, that we don't need to strive, and we can neglect um, this race that has been set before us, to have a, a, con a Christian consumer mindset that church is about me, not about how I can serve God, not about how I can run this race well. Uh, this is a race that we are running together. We need to hold one another up as we run this race, and we seek to, to run it well. We are in a, a spiritual battle that is, is real. And we have Israel as an example. We should learn from Israel how we can better run the race that God has set before us. Ephesians 4 says that there is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. God, we pray that you would allow us to, to run a race that will not disqualify us, that we would run with endurance and perseverance, and that we would wear your name well. God, help us to use our liberty in a way that honors you, that doesn't cause our brother to stumble, doesn't disqualify us from having an effective ministry uh, in a world that is is dying and falling and looking for hope, looking for purpose, looking for salvation. God, we pray that you would help us to, to be a light in this world, that we would run well, that we would represent you well. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.